State of Digital Publishing is creating a new publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Jim Giles, a journalist and CEO of Timeline, about the state of history journalism and how to thrive in a narrow publishing niche. Let's begin. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for asking. How's, how's things in Taiwan um, these days? They're good. Really uh, exciting time right now. Uh, we have a new editor in place. Her name is Laura Smith, who is one of our senior writers. who's just been promoted to editor. Actually, this morning, just got out of a, a meeting with Laura and our colleagues where we were talking about a bunch of new editorial initiatives that we're really excited about. So, yeah, it feels like a good time. So that's very exciting. I'm sure she's very excited to step, take a step up as well. Jim, just, just for everyone who doesn't know much about Time and about yourself, if you can just provide a bit of a background and how you guys are set up at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So Timeline is a digital publisher. We focus on our website, timeline.com, and our Facebook page. And we're really all about talking about history in a different way. So we think that if you go and sort of grab a random person on the street and ask them what they think about history, there's a high chance they're going to say that it's boring. It's just something that they just don't feel it's for them. And the reason why a lot of people feel like that about history is that History is often approached as a kind of lesson. It's, it's, you're told this is a, a famous person, usually a white man from history, who did important things and you should care about them. And the truth is that that leaves a lot of people cold. And we, we think about history in a completely different way. So when we start thinking about stories, we start with today. And we're always interested in asking ourselves, what is our audience thinking about? What are they paying attention to? What are they talking? What are they watching? And from there, we then go back into history and surface stories that feel relevant to those contemporary concerns. So it's really about making history the story of now, the story of how we got to now, um, and always thinking about making the stories feel fresh and relevant and relatable, even if we're talking about events that happened one or 200 years ago. With your audience, I guess, uh, having a look at your website and just understanding the, the direction of it, it seems that you guys are focusing more on women's history, black history, and, and white supremacy, and just more and, and about war stories. Is that correct? Or is that where you find the best on your audience at the moment? Or I mean, we know that so our audience is you know very roughly in the 20 to 45-year-old age range in the U.S., and that demographic is really interested in social justice. It's a big issue for them. So that's where we constrain ourselves right now. So we're interested particularly in issues of uh, race, gender, and class and the history of why those things look the way they do today. So, yes, we do a lot of stuff on African-American history and race in general. We do a lot of stuff on the history of women's rights uh, and on the history of LGBTQ rights as well. Understood. I'd like to delve a bit more deeper into this about the audience um, just in a short period. But just to take a step back, looking at your bio, it seemed that you also you you co-founded Matter, which which is a science publication. And that was also a long form journalism um, publication as well. Uh, did you look based on your learnings from that? Is that something that you transferred across to Taiwan and just decided to focus on history, or how how did that? I 
I mean, to some extent, I mean, it's, you know, as whenever you do a startup, I think you learn, it's such a crazy experience every time and you learn an enormous amount. Uh, it's just the nature of the challenge. So yes, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much stuff I learned around digital publishing, working on Matter and also working at Medium. So Matter was acquired by Medium and myself and my co-founder went to work there running matter inside medium and also working on the medium platform itself and we learned so much there that and a lot of that did transfer over to timeline but editorially they're very different things you know matter was initially a long-form science and technology publication and then it broadened its remit but it was never it never really had a history focus and I'd actually hadn't really thought about history journalism until I became involved with Timeline, first as a consultant and then as a CEO. But I spent about a year consulting for the company and really over that year came to realize just how powerful history could be as a, a vehicle for talking about contemporary concerns. Um, so, yeah, it was, I think it was a revelation for me, really, um, and, and, and it was, a lot of it was new. So you were able to find a niche while you were working, doing consulting for Medium, is that correct? Sorry, what do you mean? Uh, sorry, I guess in terms of understanding the history of journalism and, and getting into history of journalism, was that, were you able to find that niche or um, that growing need for audiences, people to read about social justice while you were at Medium, or how, how did that no, so I, I left Medium uh, in the summer of 2014 and uh, was consulting for a, a range of publishers and Timeline was one of them. So I spent about a year and just as a consultant to Timeline, sort of helping them grow the business and helping them refine their editorial strategy. And it was during that time that I really began to think deeply about what they were doing and, and how history could be you you know, what history journalism was and what it could be. But even when I took over as CEO, which was in January 2016, our editorial mission then was not, it certainly wasn't finalized. It really took six months to kind of hone. And, you know, I think like most publishers, that's a combination of editorial experiments and feedback from the audience. So you're trying new things and then you're asking yourselves, do these feel right? Am I proud of this, this content I'm producing? And what does the audience think? What kind of comments are we getting? What kind of raw viewing numbers are we getting? And that's like a constant iterative process. And for us, it took, yeah, it probably took about six months to establish the, the formulation that I've just described. I understand. So, and in terms of um, identifying the social justice challenges, it was, it was through that feedback that you mentioned. Um, with the current content now, how, how do you guys use storytelling to contextualize history and, and tie it back to present day? Like um, when someone reads when someone reads the stories now on, on timeline, what's what's the feedback that you're getting at the moment from your current audience? I mean, it's really interesting, very gratifying. You know, I would say the most common comment that we get is um, why did I not know this already? And so we found that when you tell the stories of remarkable people who come from marginalized groups, you tap into a real appetite for those kind of stories, obviously from people from the same group, but, but more broadly. And I think there's a strong sense that, you know, this appetite is really coming from a sense that the history of America as it's told conventionally is 
is told very narrowly and there's whole swathes of people and places and events and ideas that have either been downplayed or just completely ignored you know so you know here's a great example we we did a story in 2016 about this amazing uh, african-american motorcyclist a woman named bessie stringfield who at the age of 19 in 1930 rode across the united states on a harley davidson so there was an extraordinary feat that we're talking pre-interstate system here. So it would be quite a feat for anyone to ride across the country on a Harley, even much more so for a young black woman. You know, she would turn up in towns and she would be told there was nowhere for her to stay. She at, at least once was, you know, deliberately knocked from her bike um, by another a motorcyclist. But she made it across. Um, she performed stunts at local carnivals on the way to pay her way. And so her story is incredible. It's you know, we know our audience found that absolutely inspiring. The video we made about her has been watched more than 20 million times. It has attracted thousands of views. And since we told that story, uh, other publications have now started writing about Bessie. And in fact, she was given, Bessie Stringfield now has an obituary in the New York Times, just came out a, a few weeks ago. So I think that's a great example of a, of a genuinely remarkable person whose story has was largely ignored really uh, until we told it and it was largely ignored because of because of who she was because she was a black woman and black women in general are one of uh, several groups whose histories have not gotten the attention they should have done because of the power structures in America and so to go back to your point about what do people say when we when we write about people like Bessie we get comments every time saying, I wish I'd learned about this person in high school. I should have learned about this person. How many more people are there out there like this that I haven't been told about? And we love hearing that because uh, that means we're doing our job and, and we're, we're sort of creating a new way of talking about America that, that feels, I think, it, it feels very relevant to the, the struggles that we have today. And how, how are you guys currently set up to be able to uncover these new stories? And how do you, and, and people that haven't had their stories heard, um, and how do you find these stories in general? I mean, it's just, I, I don't think like we have any magic. It's just, um, just research. You know, we, we have got really good at knowing where these gems are hidden in archives, in libraries, but it's, you know, it's not, you know, I think a lot of it is just we. This is our job, and this is what we focus on every day. And I think we've got really good at it. But it's not like it's not a kind of content form that didn't exist previously. And it's not like our research process is radically different. It's just that this is what we choose to focus on. I understand. Uh, but does does anything um, like in terms of you know you, you said how, how current events is trying to tie back to current events to history, contextualizing it. How much of a role does that play in, in the research process that you guys take? We, so we don't tend to look at like the headlines of the day and respond to them. That's actually something we tried doing. It's very hard to do that in a consistent way. So, for example, as we're recording this, like the big story is um, James Comey's uh, book, which is out today, and the argument that that has started with President Trump 
that's not something we don't sort of run off when we see those headlines and kind of say, okay, can we, you know, what's the story we can tell that feels relevant to us? That is, you know, that's a story that will, will probably go away. You know, that particular bump in, in the, in President Trump's larger story. We're, we're more interested in, in the bigger trends. So a story that we did respond to quite extensively was the Me Too movement and the Harvey Weinstein um, sexual harassment issues, because that was an issue that stayed in the news for months and really hasn't gone away. You know, it's still, it's still having a moment. So in that case, we went back and we really looked at the, the history of sexual harassment in the modern workplace. And we found what we think is the first organized campaign against a sexual harassment incident, which was in 1974, I think. Uh, we found the first front page story in a, in a national newspaper about sexual harassment and we interviewed the journalist that wrote that. And, and that is, that's a more natural way for us to respond because it's a bigger story. Like we, we can't, we're a small team, there's 10 of us, so we, we can't be chasing every day's headline. No, definitely. And I think that's what plays to your strengths in, in creating long-form journalism as well. So no, I appreciate you clarifying that. Um, do you think, taking the, um, in, in terms of looking at past his, history journalism, when people think about history, the automatic, I think the assumption is that they think about History Channel or, discover, or think about the documentaries and, and the videos. Do you think that, in your opinion, that has played a role in how history journalism has um, formed and, or, or, or maybe just has that shifted just to video? Or what's, what's your thoughts around how history journalism has shaped from, from to, to today? I mean, I think a lot of history journalism, if you go back five or ten years, I mean, first of all, I think it's not really a phrase. History journalism isn't even a phrase that people use. It's not something they've thought about. But if you go back and you look at content about history, a lot of it was made for people who are interested in history. And that's one of the reasons why I think people feel like history isn't for them because of that. It was made for people who had a, you know, already were interested in learning more about Napoleon. Adrian Abraham Lincoln or whoever and I think uh, what we've seen over the last five years is an emergence of a new kind of historical storytelling which is the kind that we pursue we're not the only ones that do this you know the Washington Post has a great regular series called Retropolis Um, Retro Report is a video series that appears on the New York Times and elsewhere there's a a semi-regular newsletter called Bunk, which is great. So I think we're seeing an emergence of a new kind of historical storytelling, which I hope we're very much at the forefront of. How do you think about staying at the forefront? Um, Is it the fact that you guys are on Medium that helps you with your distribution? Or how do you, yeah, to that question, I guess, yeah. I mean, Medium's been a great home for us. It doesn't, it's not a huge boost in terms of distribution. We get some traffic from within the, the Medium network, but like most people, we're looking at social and search as our, our main drivers. And, you know, if you ask, how do we, how do we want to stay at the forefront, is just continuing to innovate, really. And I think that's true with any digital publisher. This is why publishing is such a fun place to be right now, even though the insecurity is very high and there's a lot of anxiety and that's that's a real thing but there's also an amazing amount of freedom to innovate we're a small team so it's wonderful we can come up with ideas and uh, we can start building them that afternoon if we if we all get excited about it and that's how you know hopefully we'll stay at the forefront and and i don't you know i think that's 
it's not even that's how we stay at the forefront. That's just how most digital publications have to operate right now because things are changing so quickly. And uh, you, we're, we're in a process of continually refining our product. And, and speaking about your product, you've got the support timeline page and, and it has the subscription per month, monthly subscription. Is there, is there, um, how, how do you go about trying to develop a sustainable business around trying to develop that, um, trying to get more subscribers? Yeah, well, subscribe. We call them members. Actually, there's no paywall, but we uh, the membership scheme is very much in beta. So we're still experimenting with the kind of different messages that we can use to talk to members and trying to understand the different things that might motivate our audience to support us. Um, but I am hoping over the next year that membership's going to uh, evolve into a really useful revenue stream for us. The other things that we're doing. We have a partnership on the education side, so we we work with a company called Nearpod that takes our articles and builds lesson plans around them. Uh, so we have a deal with them, and uh, we're also starting to do sponsored content. So we're really happy the last few weeks to have done a, a promotional series for a film called Beirut, uh, starring John Hamm of Mad Men fame. Uh, the movie Beirut, which has just come out. Or is set during the Lebanese Civil War, which was a very bloody but also very complex historical period. And um, the distributors of the movie were kind of recognized that the history behind the film was, was a really important part of the film and wanted to do some storytelling about it. And they approached us because they really liked the way that we do historical storytelling. So we did uh, a series of photo essays and videos about the Lebanese Civil War that also helped promote the movie. Um, and so that was our first first foray into sponsored content. But again, that's something we're really going to be pushing hard to build out over the next year. So that's that's I guess your role. Into, your role is more towards trying to build up these partnerships, diversify the revenue streams, trying to find other opportunities to help beyond the subscription to help you make a more sustainable business. Is that is that correct? I mean, I think all young digital publishers are. Uh, have to be scrappy and and we're constantly looking for for new ways in which we could bring in revenue but um you don't want to be trying too many different things at once so our big focuses right now are building out membership pushing hard doing some more work on the education side and uh, closing further branded content deals so what's what's some of the audience initiatives and lessons that you can provide to the to our listeners around developing a membership product so that you've learned so far yeah i mean we you know the best if any of you anyone listening is is interested in building a membership product if you haven't done already i would recommend uh checking out jay rosen's project at nyu around membership i think it's it's called something as simple as the membership product project and um it's an amazing resource they uh, they're continually interviewing publications that have membership schemes and publishing reports and blog posts about what they learn. And so I've learned a ton ton from that. What we've learned from talking to our audience is it seems like the motivation is very much around the motivation to support us is around the mission. So the value that we bring to the world by doing our journalism. People don't seem particularly motivated by things like access to exclusive content or 
the chance to talk to our editors or the chance to give us more intimate feedback on what we do, which were all things that we thought they might be interested in. It seems like it's, it's a kind of a simpler decision, which is just like, yeah, I like the work you're doing and, and you're making the world a better place, so I'll be willing to support you. I would say that, you know, that is our hypothesis based on initial feedback, but we're really in the beginnings of our membership scheme. And I think one, you know, one thing that we've learned, or particularly from the membership project is like, you've got to keep talking to your members um, and you've got to keep learning, keep trying to find out why people sign up and why they don't sign up and, and, and use that as um, data when you, you refine uh, what the scheme looks like. Jim, how long have you been focusing on the subscription and how long, and what, what do you think is a tipping point for you to say, okay, I think we've got something here. Let's just try to ramp things up. On the membership side? Yeah, the, subscri- yeah, the membership side. I mean, I think, you know, we, we need our membership to number in the thousands and it does not, we're not at that level yet. And we didn't expect to be, you know, we only launched a couple of months ago, but, you know, I guess if we get to the end of this year and we're still nowhere near getting crossing a thousand members, then that's looking bleak, you know, and we would have to rethink. But I think the potential is actually much higher, you know, looking at the size of, our audience, you know, we, we have millions of people viewing our content every month. Um, we get fantastic comments, such such positive, positive sort of thoughtful feedback comes in so regularly that I do think there's a, there's a big potential to bring in, you know, to build a membership scheme that's like got 5,000, 10,000 people in it, and that's where we want to be. And just for people who are starting out in journalism and digital media and who are interested in covering history specifically and and in and working in startups as well what's your advice to them i mean i think i don't know if i have particular advice for publish for, for writing about history you know it's such a it's such a small field but i think you know my advice to people who are interested in doing startups uh, is always just think really hard about what else is out there and ask yourself what value am i adding if i create this thing because the costs, the barrier to entry in journalism basically disappeared with the advent of the internet and, you know, certainly with the later stages of the web. And that led to a massive proliferation of publications, many of which really were just chasing audience via, you know, almost like the art of, they, they were almost sort of like taking advantage of quirks of social media platforms. So like, oh, Facebook is going to send me a lot of traffic. So I'm going to create something that gets a lot of traffic on Facebook. Those publications, you know, a lot of those publications have now disappeared. And I think a much better question to ask yourself is what value can I add? Not can I get a lot of traffic by doing this thing on this platform, but am I providing people with a type of content that doesn't exist or maybe does exist but isn't done very well or isn't done in this new original way that I've got. And if you've got something powerful and original, then put that at the heart of your business and build everything else around it and try and make the traffic work. I mean, nothing works without an audience. So ultimately that what that's what matters. But if you start with a trick that you think is going to get lots of audience, then odds are it won't work. Understood. Um, just one final question. Is there any technologies or approaches that you're looking at exploring at, at the moment that, to help you further build 
your your storytelling and and just overall timeline offering? I don't think we're looking at any technologies that people aren't already using extensively. I mean, we're a small team, so there's ten of us here. So we don't even have we don't even do Instagram stories, for example, which would be a great thing for us to do. So, you know, if if I had more resources and more staff, there isn't like a brand new untested tech that I would I would jump to deploy. I would actually just put more time and energy into doing things that are already out there and already proven to work, but which we have not had the the resources to exploit. That makes sense. Thanks, thanks for joining us, Jim. I appreciate it. Not at all. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time. Wherever you go, however you go, for energy on the go, it's got to be 5-Hour Energy. It works fast, it works long, it tastes good, and with zero sugar and four calories, there's nothing holding you back. Fits your pocket, fits your backpack, fits your on-the-go life, whether you're going to work, going on vacation, or just going out with friends. 5-Hour Energy. Energy on the go. For more information, visit 5-HourEnergy.com. 5-Hour Tea with caffeine from Green Tea Leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. 5-Hour Tea, caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural sight from the makers of 5-Hour Energy. For more information, visit 5-HourEnergy.com.